Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast. My name's Steve Anglesey. I'm the editor of the New European. Coming up, is it time for Labour to say what they really mean about Brexit? And as France warns that the worst effects of its drought are still yet to come, how worried should we be about the future of Europe's water? Before all that, if you enjoy what we do at the New European, there's really no better way to support us than by subscribing. And to make that decision easier, we've got a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for just £2 a week. For the print and digital package at just £2 a week, you get unlimited digital access to our archive, to our newsletters, plus our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. To take advantage of this exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid TNE readers, what you need to do is subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. So shortly, Francis Beckett on Labour in Europe and Claire Nickenhaler on Drought in Europe. First, though, as I mentioned briefly in the last episode, from next week on this podcast, I will be joined by a couple of new regular co-hosts, and we will be bringing you enhanced coverage of European politics and culture with a British angle. We'll still be putting malevolent ministers and putrid pundits into a hall of shame, and that will be coming up later in this episode too. And, of course, we will still be covering the downs and downs and downs of the unfolding nightmare that is Brexit. Look out for all of that in the next episode. Now, at the front of the queue, like Phil and Holly, when there's mourning to be done, but not like Britain, when it comes to doing trade deals with the USA, let's turn to Francis Beckett and the Labour Conference. Uh, That is happening in the excellent Socialist Republic of Liverpool from Sunday the 25th of September to Wednesday the 28th. What could possibly go wrong for somebody like Keir Starmer in Liverpool? Francis Beckett, the Labour historian, the author of biographies uh, of Attlee, Bevan, Blair and Brown, he previews it for us in issue 309 of the New European. That's the one with the cover that asks, is Europe's water running out? And of course, the main topic of interest in Liverpool for new European readers, uh, although it's something Keir Starmer won't want to talk about too much, 
is Labour's stance on Brexit. Francis, uh, remind us first, please, exactly what Labour are saying about Europe now and Brexit and what is likely to be said about those things in Liverpool. Oh, Labour is uh, Labour is going to be absolutely clear. There is no question of a Labour, the next Labour government returning to Europe, holding a referendum, returning to the single market. There is going to be no movement on that. What Labour believes is that all the conflicts that have been created can be resolved, given a government that is firstly determined to resolve them, and secondly, doesn't think that its political capital is owed entirely to showing that it's being tough with the hated foreigners in Brussels. So what they want to do is to resolve, firstly, <clears throat> firstly, obviously, the conflict over the Northern Ireland Protocol and the conflict over refugees, all those conflicts, it believes can be resolved by detailed and exact negotiations. But there is no question on movement over returning to the European Union. And of course, you, I mean, you say in this piece that Labour is so cautious about Europe now that, that when members of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet go to Brussels or Paris or Berlin, that they're, they're under instruction to keep their visit secret. And they are. They're not. They are, yeah. because what they're, what they're terrified of is that a photographer will be sent along from the, uh, from, from the Express or the Mail and will take the sort of picture, and as you know, Steve, it's very easy to do if you're a good professional photographer, will wait until there's a moment when you've got the picture that looks like the, uh, the, the, the British minister being told what to do by the French minister or the German minister or the EU official, um, and that, 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 that will then become the basis of a complete non-story. But it doesn't matter if it's a non-story. If you make, if you put it onto the front page of a national newspaper, suddenly it looks as though it is a story. And they are utterly paranoid about this. They are concerned about absolutely anything. I think Keir Starmer is acutely aware that, by and large, general elections are not won, they are lost. That one small misstep, he feels, might be enough to throw the whole thing back to this appalling, increasingly reactionary, discredited and corrupt Conservative government that we have at the moment. He's, he, he's acutely aware that, that he could... He's like a man, I suppose, carrying a terribly precious relic around that would smash into several pieces if he dropped it. And he's terrified of dropping it. And so, yes, he's given instructions that, that all, all of his shadow ministers who go to meetings in Brussels, and there are a great many more of these meetings than we know about, um, are, are, have to have to keep the meetings absolutely se secret. If there is going to be an announcement, it's it's made afterwards and it's made fairly discreetly, and it's not made by press release. It's made on Twitter. Yes, I mean he's he's they paranoia is the word, isn't it? And I think it, it, it you know it's a recognition of the fact that the the idea that Keir Starmer campaigned against Brexit and for a, a people's vote is is still you know quite toxic in some areas where that, that Labour are, are hoping to win back um is although it's possibly not as toxic as 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 he thinks it is yes. however it remains the case that the fact that Starmer is paranoid doesn't necessarily mean that he isn't going to be persecuted no of course no well the paranoid paranoid is somebody who knows what's going on as uh, <laughs> I can't remember who said that William Burroughs perhaps um does it help Starmer, do you think, that Liz Truss was a Remainer? Is that, is that a better thing for him than facing up to Boris Johnson, the, the, the face of Brexit? 
I don't think so particularly, no. It's, it's going to be certainly a useful debating point every so often. Um, she, she's not going to be able to say, look at you, you campaigned for Remain. So it's, it's, it, there's, there's a minor sort of argument, there's, there's a minor assistance in argument. But no, um, Liz Truss has so completely uh, abandoned everything that she believed at that time uh, and is now has made such an enormous effort to become the most reactionary and foreigner-hating prime minister that, um, that, that, that she could possibly be. That, that I, and I think she's done that pretty successfully and, and pretty completely. Uh, it's a pretty contemptible exercise, but, it, but if you're going to do it, you might as well do it properly. And she has done it properly. And I think she's probably managed to, managed to shake off most of the odium that attaches to her for having campaigned for Remain. Yes. Well, it's got to where she wants, wanted to get to, certainly, hasn't it? Um, certainly done that. Certainly done that. But, uh, but, but, but let us hope only for a short time. Yes. Now, we know that, that Labour have met Olaf Scholz. Keir Starmer's met Olaf Scholz. And, and we know that, that, um, that Labour have met uh, Macron's trade minister. Yeah, Roland Lesture. What is that's right? Yes. Yeah. So what is what's being discussed in these in these meetings? And and I mean, is it? I mean, Labour's stated aim is to do Brexit better. So it, what are they discussing that would make Brexit better? What they're trying to do is obviously they're not in a position to do any negotiating at the moment. You can't negotiate because Labour isn't in power. Um, <clears throat> what they're what they're trying to do is uh, firstly to create the atmosphere in which negotiations can take place, the atmosphere of trust, to show um, Macron's people and Olaf Scholz's people that the next Labour government is not going to consist of people who want to do megaphone diplomacy with them. It's going to consist of people who will negotiate in good faith and are not concerned to go out of the negotiations afterwards and, and, and talk about these wicked Germans need wicked Europeans. They're not so much trying to do the detailed negotiations because you can't really do those until you're in government. What they're trying to do is to create the atmosphere of trust against which those negotiations can happen. Now, obviously, there's a little bit more than that going on. For example, over the, uh, over the question of the Northern Ireland Protocol, they are already floating, not as a negotiating thing, but, but floating the idea that such checks as are necessary, and they're making it clear that not very many checks are going to be necessary, such checks as are necessary could be done away from the border. It would be messy, it would be bureaucratic, but it would at least mean that there didn't have to be either a border down the Irish Sea, which makes one section of the community in Northern Ireland incandescent, nor a border around the six counties, which makes another section of the Northern Ireland population incandescent. That, that in fact, there is what I suppose Tony Blair would have called the third way. Yes, that's right. Um, and what's the... Are they also talking about the, the, the red tape that's crippling small British exporters? Yes, they are. But they're not, again, talking about it in any detail. They're mm. discussing all the matters that lie between us, the, the, the British exports, um, also European exports into Britain. Uh, they're discussing refugees and how, how in the end, there might, there might be a way to resolve the, the, the conflict without the British saying it's, the French, it's all the fault of the French and the French saying it's all the fault of the British. But how, how they might sit, sit around and, and, and solve that. <clears throat> But in the end, what they're doing on all of these issues is to create the atmosphere in which these things can be resolved rather than actually resolving them when they're not in government. Yes, yes. 
Um, a conference in Liverpool is always going to give people on the centre right, I, I suppose, or the, the centre left, um, the shivers. How much opposition to Keir Starmer's stance on this is, is there likely to be at Liverpool and, and how will it be expressed? Well, it won't be expressed on the conference floor because it won't be allowed to be expressed on yeah. the conference floor. But there are a vast number of, uh, of, of meetings all around, uh, arranged by various bodies. Uh, there'll be a, a reception run by the EU delegation. Um, folk like Richard Corbett, the former leader of, the, uh, of, the, of Britain's uh, Labour MEPs will will be explaining in detail to as many fringe meetings and as many people as he can possibly reach why he thinks Keir Starmer has misread the polling evidence and that the polling evidence, in fact, is going to point points to the idea that it would be very very popular if Britain were to uh, if, if Labour were to promise another referendum on on entry into the EU because in his view and in his reading of the polling evidence, and he's right to a great extent, there's yes. been a massive national shift of opinion since the referendum. And that if you had a referendum, to, if you were to have a referendum, I don't think there's any doubt that if you were to have a referendum tomorrow, it would be an overwhelming remain result for Remain. The, the problem is that Keir Starmer believes that even to talk about the possibility of a referendum could be fatal to his electoral prospects. Richard Corbett thinks the, thinks the opposite, and it's in fact it's the breakup of an old alliance. Because when Corbyn, when Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader, Richard Corbett and Keir Starmer were were standing shoulder to shoulder, really, against the the, the vacillation of the of the Corbyn administration, against the way Corbyn couldn't really make up his mind, wasn't really prepared to come down properly on the Remain side until it was far far too late. If Corbyn had followed their advice, we might never have left the EU, but Corbyn was built for vacillation, really, and that's what happened. So it's the breakup of an old alliance. They, they, were, they were both clear at that time that Corbyn had dreadfully badly mishandled it and was badly mishandled. They both tried to stop him. But now, <clears throat> dealing with the, with, with the mess that's been left behind, they take two opposing views. Richard Corbyn still believes very strongly that it would be possible for Labour to go into the next general election promising a referendum on, on a return to Europe. That yeah. is not going to happen. We can say that for absolutely definite. That is not going to happen. And I think we can say fairly definitely that even if uh, there, there is a very large Labour majority after the next general election, even if the Conservatives are absolutely routed at the next general election, there will not be a referendum in the next Parliament. Yes. Um, and many, I mean, we I get letters about this almost every week. Many, many people of the Remain, Rejoin, Persuasion, New European readers seem to believe that once Labour is in power, you know, the, the, if Labour is in power, the first term would be Starmer devoting his time to, to trying to make Brexit work, do Brexit better, whatever the slogan is. And then the second term would be some kind of admission that, look, it can't really work like this. We need to be even closer to Europe in, in some way. Does that ring true with you or is that just wishful thinking for, for, from certain people? I think it's a possibility. What we don't know about Starmer is whether these baby steps on Europe and on all sorts of other matters, whether these baby steps are being taken because he is being understandably desperately cautious about making a mistake, about doing something that throws the next general election, and therefore on absolutely everything, he's, 
he's making baby steps. He's doing as little as he possibly can. He's giving a, a few hostages for fortune as he can possibly manage. And that beneath all this lies somebody with some radical ambitions, lies something like a Clement Attlee figure. Clement Attlee yeah. was described as a wolf in a sheep in sheep's clothing. Actually, he was a sheep. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And and it will be very interesting to see whether whether that is actually true of of Starmer. And the answer is we don't know. An enormous amount depends upon what lies beneath Starmer's exterior, which we don't yet know. I have an idea just from talking to fairly close Starmer associates that. The fairly radical and ambitious figure lies somewhere beneath all this, uh, all this desperate caution, all this need to find yet more different ways of saying, I am not Jeremy Corbyn. And mm. um, that we might see something interesting in the second term, that what he's thinking now is that what he, that his first duty is to, is, is to make sure that the Conservatives are routed at the next general election, that, that this dreadful period of Conservative government, the worst period of Conservative government of my lifetime, and I've been around a long time, is over, is finished, is done with. And that in the future, there can be something a bit more radical. And then just finally, Francis, um, what else are we looking out for in Europe? What, what kind of, in Europe, in Liverpool rather, what kind of conferences is this going to be for, for Labour? Well, the Labour leadership now is far more in control of the conference agenda than it used to be. Yes. And, and things that the Labour leadership are determined not, don't hit the conference floor tend not to hit the conference floor. So all so the, the result of that, of course, is that the bits that everybody is interested in, all the, all, all the journalists and all the television cameras and all the interest and all the, all the enthusiasm gravitates towards the fringe. Um, so it, it's a limited uh, it's a limited use that they've managed to control the conference floor because they can't entirely control the fringe, and that's where everybody will go when they want to see Labour splits. That's where uh, Richard Corbett will be doing the rounds um, and and others <clears throat> spreading the gospel of a second referendum, um, and that's where, for example, um, th- there will be a, th- th- there'll be a number of people spreading the gospel of a move to a different electoral system. There's a strange link between the move to a different electoral system and the move towards a second referendum, because there's there's a, a growing view among those who want to return to the EU that it's not really going to happen except in the in the wake of a move towards PR, because Europe is going because European leaders and EU leaders are going to be saying, well, look, under Britain's present electoral system, we never know when we might have another brutal set of uh, brutal set of conservatives in, in, in power with them um, with, with uh, who, who who can get into power without being without having a majority of the electorate even in 2019 the conservatives only had 42% of the electorate they 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 got in because um, the 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 opposition was divided and they are not going to trust a Britain as a member of the EU under its present electoral system because they think that they're just going to go through all this mess of leaving the European Union, all the mess and all the pain and all the cost of Britain leaving the European Union 
yet again a few years afterwards. So that it merely has to be, it really has to go hand in hand with the change to the British electoral system. That's apparently a view held by a number of, uh, of EU leaders and certainly held by a number of leaders of organisations like Remain, you, uh, like um, <clears throat> of, of, of organisations that, that, that are campaigning to return to the EU. Yes, that's right. Uh, and it's something else to look out for, isn't it? Uh, and something else to look out for is you'll play uh, Clement Attlee, which is going to be at the Epstein Theatre. During really, the- I really hope, I, I'm really pleased you mentioned that, Steve. Um, <laughs> yes, my play Clement Attlee will be at the Epstein Theatre, Liverpool, which is a 10 minute walk from the conference centre. It was, it's, it's had three London runs in fringe theatres in London, been very well received, played to full houses. Uh, and a lot of people thought it was very entertaining as well as very instructive. And it'll be at the Epstein Theatre at 8pm on the Monday the 26th and Tuesday the 27th of, of the conference. And, and I'm hoping to see a large number of conference delegates there. And if it has a message for the present leadership, it is that Labour does best when it's, when it's radical and when it's bold and when it's adventurous, as it was under Clement Attlee. And that the strategy of keeping quiet and coming to power on the basis that the Conservative government is utterly dreadful has its limitations. Hmm. We shall see. Good luck with it, Francis. Thank you, Steve. A pleasure to talk to you as always. Uh, Francis Beckett there. So Clement Attlee by Francis Beckett at the Epstein Theatre. During the Labour Party conference, you can read Francis's piece on Labour and Europe and Brexit in issue 309 of the New European Newsstands Now, or uh, subscribe and you'll get access to all Francis's pieces for the New European. For our special deal for podcast listeners, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Now, in a week where Vladimir Putin is once again waving his nuclear card and Iran is teaching us a new definition of morality, uh, another crisis for Europe and the world, uh, which is being less talked about. I am joined by my excellent colleague from the New European, Claire Nickenheiler, um, whose cover story in issue 309 uh, of the New European asks us to consider why Europe's water is running out and what we can do to stop it. Um, Clara, it's a, it's, it's a very worrying and uh, fascinating piece. Um, it's a tremendously scary, isn't it? This is, of course, about the climate crisis um, and the fact that if we don't take even more urgent action to cut emissions, the world is on track for, for, for drastic warm, warming. Um, just, I mean, how... Did you learn new information while while writing this? Was this was where was your worry level about this before you started, and where is it now? Well, um, Steve, my worry level was pretty high. It's now even higher. I mean, um, I, 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 I obviously we all witnessed the heat waves um, this summer over Europe, and the you know resulting devastating wildfires you know we saw the parched rivers 
in our own area in St. Albans here, I could see the park drying up. The grass was becoming um, drier, more yellow. And in fact, when I went on holiday to Kenya this year, I realized that there was great similarities between the two environments. So, you know, the evidence is in front of our eyes. What is really scary now is how this is becoming more frequent. So, for example, the UN has said that the intensity and frequency of droughts is increasing by nearly a third since 2000. And some experts say we could see the kind of drought event we had this year every year by 2050. Now, to put this year's drought Europe-wide in context, they, uh, European experts estimate that this was the worst drought since 2018. That was the last really bad one. And that itself was the worst one since 500 years ago. So we're looking at an event which surpasses all records back until, uh, you know, the restoration. That in itself is very worrying. And just then what we saw this summer, but also the knowledge that we are going to be seeing this more frequently in the coming years so we really need to do something to react to it now yes i mean i guess by dint of, of where we are in the world we've developed so we blase about water aren't we we've developed a perception that it is an infinite resource for, for people like us do we, we don't really recognize the true value of water do we I think that's exactly it. And um, one of the people I spoke to for this piece, Colin Heron, who works at the Global Water Partnership, put it very well, I thought. He said, you know, our governments are treating our water budgets like a credit card. Yeah. But it's a credit card you never get a bank statement for. <laughs> and basically, the drought is the bank saying you're using too much. And so one of the problems already, the European Environment Agency says that um, water stress is already affecting 30% of the population in Europe every year. That's now. So we need to move um, and governments need to move from regarding water shortages and water scarcity as a crisis and see it now as risk management. This is going to happen all the time. One example where people are beginning to realize it is this summer, we saw the water levels decline so sharply in the Rhine, a vital artery in the European supply chain, that ships were not able to ferry all the goods they needed to. Some of them only had to carry a quarter of their normal loads. Now, some ship companies and, and makers of ships are saying they're going to have to totally redesign their ships so that they can continue moving when the water is really low. So it's that kind of, you know, we can no longer think, oh, my goodness, it might happen in 2050. This is happening now. And in fact, another um, scientist I spoke to, Joel Guillaume, who uh, is at the University of Aix-Marseille and who works with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN body that is most authoritative on this. He said one of the problems is the psychological block, right? Everyone recognizes that climate change is a problem. We know we have to cut emissions. The problem is we're not willing to put up with short-term pain for this long-term game. It's just difficult to realize you can see the problem. I mean, it's right there in front of us with the devastating wildfires, the parched rivers, the shipwrecks appearing during the summer from rivers which have declined. But then someone says, don't use your car. 
or, mm. you know, maybe you need to eat more, more of a plant-based diet. And that's where the disconnect is. And that is where governments have to step in and start to, you know, pull all of these ideas together. And experts say that this is also one of the problems, not only that we don't value water, but we have water in government departments in a kind of box, right? It's like, that's the Department of Environment. And we, as with all problems caused by our climate emergency, we need to be making connections these issues need to be front and foremost for all government departments instead of being, you know, oh, water's over there or pollution's over there. It's got to be much more holistic approach. Yes, I mean the some. I mean the drama of this summer is 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 just remarkable, isn't it? I know you've talked about the the, uh, the, the ships uh, and stuff like that, but um, and and there. Incredibly evocative images of the River Po. We've used them in the print edition of the New European this week. You'll have seen them on the TV before that. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm stunned. I was stunned as we were preparing this piece for for publication that that France were were basically saying, you know, it, it's it's this is still going on. We expect the worst effects uh, of this drought to to be happening in in October, um, and and then we've you know we've seen. These these other thing, I mean, places like Nantes temporarily running out of water. That's a major city in France. A hundred municipalities, I think you said, um, in France. Um, now, people who are climate change skeptics will say, "Well, well, all of this will will change when it rains a bit, won't it?" But it won't, will it? No, I mean. <laughs> As you say, the predictions are that this drought continues for a couple of months now into October and November, and that's across most of Europe. But the other problem is that, you know, rainfall doesn't fix everything straight away. I mean, the soil has been depleted. And so soil moisture levels are very low already, and it takes a long time to, to, to build that up again. And, 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 and so when the rain falls, it runs off because the soil is not able to absorb it. So you have this, you know, what we've seen as catastrophic floods in some places, which follow from droughts because the land is simply not able to absorb the water. So that's one of the problems. The other area where you have it continuing on, even if we do get rainfall, Damage has already been done to things like food security, to hydropower levels. So all of those effects will continue into next year. And of course, this is all coming at a time when, you know, inflation is running high, food is in short supply because of the war in Ukraine, you know, costs are rising because of energy prices, fertilizer prices, the costs of shipping. And now add on to that, the scarcity caused by a drought, and you're going to see the harvest being lower, you know, we've warned that they're up to 20% lower across countries like Italy, France, in Spain, you know, harvests are much lower. And um, so next year, all of these effects continue. And a little bit of rainfall is not going to change it. Not to mention what I mentioned before about the trend. So the trend is that these droughts are happening more frequently and they're more intense, which is also happening um, with heat waves. If you think about the fact that this year, we, France had four heat waves with temperatures over 40 degrees. So I would say to climate deniers, you know, it's not just one of the problems that people have sometimes is they look at this as weather. It's not weather, it's mm. climate change and it's trends that you need to be looking at, not a rainfall here and a bit of heat there and a day on the beach here, you know? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we are 
we're all I mean we're we're all Europhiles listening producing the new European and and listening to this podcast and 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 I, you know one of the things that's fundamental about Europe um especially now in a, in a, a time when food security and and uh, and um food miles are, are so foremost in our mind you know it is is the agriculture of Europe, and, and this is, we're, I mean, we've already seen big hits to Europe's agriculture, haven't we? This year we've seen, that you mentioned farmers being warned that they could lose 60% of the risotto rice uh, harvest, corn harvest 18% lower, presumably there's knock-on for milk with cattle and, and stuff like that. What are the, what are the, the, the experts saying about long-term the long-term impacts for, for Europe's agriculture? Well, they're quite dramatic. Um, I mentioned uh, that climate, climatologist Joel Guillaume, so he produced a study in 2016, in fact. So, you know, this is uh, unfortunately not great news, but that warned of complete, you know, that some parts of Southern Europe could turn into deserts because of this rise in temperature. So what, what, what you're seeing is you're going to see that you're not able to produce fruit or vegetables in Southern Spain or Portugal. He also did another study on viticulture, no wine coming from Southern Spain or Portugal. And you may be able to grow it on the Atlantic coast of these countries. Similarly in North Africa, very little agriculture will be possible without irrigation, which is all fine and good, but where's the water gonna come from for that irrigation? So what you're gonna see is a kind of shifting of resources and agricultural richness up through Europe towards the North. And of course, what that might lead to then is the shifting in populations. So it could be quite dramatic because people will leave the kind of hostile south to move north. And in fact, the UN's um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that more than a third of the population in Southern Europe will have less water than they need if temperatures go to two degrees. Now, two degrees, as many experts will say, is almost certainly locked in by the middle of this century. I mean, even if we cut emissions immediately, which obviously we're not doing. However, if temperatures rise by three degrees, that risk doubles. And then you'll see movements from Western and Central Europe as well. So it's not only, you know, as soon as you talk about the agriculture changing, which will evidently happen as, you know, droughts become more persistent in certain areas. You're also talking about movements of people, but mm. also, you know, then you have a risk of conflict. And we know that water conflict happens in other areas of the world. And I should mention that, you know, whatever we're suffering in Europe this summer, and obviously, you know, the uh, consequences are quite dramatic with the fires and the scarcities in some places. It, it's happening around the world. Yes. I mean, there was a huge drought in China this year. The Yangtze River um, dried up in some parts. Massive effect on hydropower, industrial output. In East Africa, in the Horn of Africa, there's a drought. This is the fourth year they've had um, too little rainfall. So, you know, it's happening everywhere. And, you know, as resources become scarcer, people are more apt to, to, to fight about them. And even in France this year, there have been some areas where, you know, some farmers built these huge uh, reservoirs for their land and, and kind of took the water throughout the year so they could continue to have a supply. But that angered other people in the area because, of course, they were saying the farmers are taking it from the rest of the ecological system. Yeah. So, you know, these things, all of this is quite dramatic. And 
the, the, the fact that we know these droughts are going to become more frequent means that these consequences are going to happen. And this is what experts mean when they say, you know, we've got to move from crisis management, like, oh, my goodness, we've got a drought, to acknowledging that this is the trajectory that we are on. Is there, I mean, clearly cutting emissions and emission targets and all of that is, is central to all of this. Is there any, I mean, is there any way... Is there, are there any marginal gains in, you know, efficiencies in the way that we use water, the way that we store water, those kind of things? Are there any are there any things that other countries are doing, countries in Europe are doing that, that Britain can learn from? Well, the European countries are governed by the European um, Water Framework Directive. And most experts agree this is quite a good uh, legislative structure. You know, it's meant to stop pollution and promote sustainable management of water resources. So that is considered to be quite good, although not quite up to the task of the scarcity that we're going to have in the future. And it needs to be enforced more because um, some countries just ignore the regulations, then they are fined. But of course, it'd be much better if they obey the regulations and didn't pay the fine. Um, So, you know, one of the things is that governments actually have an obligation in this. Um, Under the 2015 Sustainable Development Goals, which most countries signed up to, one of those goals is to ensure universal access to safe and affordable drinking water. So this is something that governments are committed to do they just need to do better however you know whatever is happening in Europe they do seem to be better at repairing their leaky pipes so in the UK for example it's been um, shown that we lost one trillion litres of water through leaky pipes and at the current rate that we're repairing our pipes it's going to take 2,000 years to replace the damaged pipes so you know, you need you need to be prioritizing these issues. And as to the things that we could be doing ourselves, um, the head of the Environment Agent, Sir James Bevan, just recently was writing in the uh, in one of the newspapers here and said that you know the public also needs to take a role in this and to you know think about water again. It's that concept of of water is not infinite. We all need to get into this uh, mindset. So you know, take uh, showers instead of baths and use your washing machines and dishwashers more effectively. And we know this can work because in 2018, for example, Cape Town in South Africa became one of the first major cities to almost run out of water. And that's quite a shocking concept. I mean, we haven't really got to that. We haven't made that imaginative leap yet in Europe. But there they almost got to the point where the city had no water. But the public rallied and they were advised to take shorter showers, not to flush the toilet so much and do everything they could to recycle and reuse water. And they didn't get to day zero. Problem is, like most things now with the 24 news cycle rushing us through events every day, we've forgotten the lessons from that. And so we find ourselves again at that situation of not valuing water for the life source that it is. Uh, and finally, and I hate to remind you of this, but Liz Truss is the Prime Minister. Um, what has Liz Truss said so far about the, this climate emergency and uh, the, the drought droughts that we've seen and, and how hopeful can we be that this is going to be prominent in Liz Truss's uh, intro? 
I'm not sure that we can be that hopeful. I mean, one of the things I found quite striking during the uh, race for the Tory leadership was the fact that they didn't say very much about this at all. And mm. um, they both, the two candidates at the end, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, obviously Liz Truss, the final winner, but they both claim to be in favour of net zero. But we're not really seeing um, a focus on that in the policies. I mean, they've talked about uh, allowing fracking to go ahead. They've talked about more licenses for oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. This is definitely not the way to be going. And what we haven't heard anything about is any sensible joined up thinking, which says, look what happened this summer. I mean, it seems like they didn't notice the heat wave or the drought, even as they kind of ran between what I can only imagine to have been stifling halls where they were doing all those debates. But it's not been something that they seem to have prioritised. And it's quite disappointing, really, because if you think back to last year and COP26, which was held, the climate change meeting, which was held in Scotland, and the UK was leading that, we're now heading into the next one of those meetings, the COP27, um, where the UK basically hands over the mandate to Egypt. And it's just, we are not hearing any major push and it, it cannot be dealt with on this idea of it's a hot potato that countries hand over. Countries need to be wa- working together. And in fact, that's what some of the experts said for my piece that I wrote was the world can go in two directions now. You can either kind of button down and just protect yourself and a kind of protectionist uh, mantra that extends to environmental change, or you can work together. Now, it probably would be a great role for global Britain to be seen and to be active in helping to manage climate change and the scarcity of water and the rising temperatures but it's not something that we're hearing a lot about at the moment and it doesn't seem to be a great priority well it should be a great priority uh and uh, we will no doubt be talking about it um uh, in the very near future and let's hope that uh, the government are listening uh to read more on this pick up issue 309 of the new european you can get that at uh, news agents now uh, it's with the Europe's Water is Running Out uh, front cover with Clark's excellent piece. Uh, and if you subscribe, you'll get access to all uh, Clark's pieces for The New European. For a special deal for podcast listeners, subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. And finally, it's time for the Hall of Shame, where we put malevolent ministers, bullshitting backbenchers, putrid pundits, and other things that annoy us. Uh, Lindsay Hoyle is in the Hall of Shame this week, the Speaker of the House of Commons. I uh, don't really have much of an opinion on Lindsay Hoyle uh, normally. However, this week he declared on the TV politics show that the funeral of the Queen was the most important event the world will ever see. Uh, really? Uh, now, I, I'm trying to delve into this. I was indebted to my new European colleague, Tim Walker, who writes in his Mandrake column in the New European this week, uh, that the explanation for this uh, old hands in the Commons say is that Lindsay Hoyle is trying to overcompensate uh, in his royalness uh, for the time when, uh, as a newly elected Labour MP in 1997, he kept uh, nagging Tony Blair about conspiracy theories uh, over the death of Princess Diana. Hoyle uh, wanted the then Prime Minister to make a full statement about whether British security agents were involved in the crash that killed 
Diana. Uh, Blair replied in a confidential note uh, to Hoyle that he wasn't going to do so, said the claims were ridiculous and deeply distressing to the princess's family. Uh, and papers since released by the National Archives also uh, show that a number 10 official had noted of Hoyle's request uh, that he was a publicity mad loony. So for uh, anyone uh, who was wondering about why Lindsay Hoyle went uh, so dramatically off-piece there. That is the reason why. Um, talking about going dramatically off-piece, let's go all the way to uh, Germany, where Alternative for Deutschland, the uh, the far-right anti-EU German party, are in the Hall of Shame. Uh, AFD's logo has got a, a tick mark underneath it, a bit like the um, Nike swoosh, the Amazon-style uh, tick. And uh, AFD have come up with the... Uh, wizard Wee's sending out packets of jelly sweets in the shape of that red tick. And guess what? When you open them up, it's a packet of three, uh, by the way. Uh, and the little uh, jelly sweets in the shape of a red tick uh, look like bright red penises, uh, much, uh, as I suspect, like the supporters of Alternative for Deutschland do. Uh, Liz Truss is in the Hall of Shame, the Prime Minister. She says that high energy bills are a price worth paying. Yes, I think they are a price worth paying. Uh, uh, they should be being paid by the oil and gas companies with their £170 billion in profits rather than you and me. Uh, what I really liked about Truss this week was w when she said, I will always work to make sure that we are helping those who are struggling. And she has certainly uh, helped the poor bankers who are struggling with a cap on bonuses which means that they can only earn bonuses of two times their annual salaries imagine the salaries that some of these people take the bonuses that they've been complaining about are limited to two times their annual salaries imagine if you got a bonus of twice your annual salary and said it wasn't enough and widdicombe of course is always in the hall of shame in her terrible column, in the even worse Daily Express, she reveals how she spent her time in government, and it certainly was not wasted. Anne Widdicombe writes, Therese Coffey hates the Oxford comma, and she is encouraging her civil servants not to use it. All I can say is good luck to her if my own experience is anything to go by. My own grammatical bugbear is the mixing of singular and plurals, as in a pensioner collects their benefit. Three decades ago, I did my best to get civil servants in the Department of Social Security to eliminate this error from letters I was expected to sign personally. I offered a bottle of wine if they could manage a run of 50 letters without mixing singular and plural. It was a long time before anyone claimed it. Uh, there you go. There is Anne Widdicombe uh, making it clear. Uh, the Conservatives less concerned about people getting benefits, uh, more concerned about the grammar used in letters about people getting benefits or not getting them. But foremost in the Hall of Shame this week is the Brexiteer MP, Andrew Bridgen. Uh, you might have read, uh, and I think we've talked about it here before, um, that he's just been evicted from the restored uh, 18th century cottage that he shared with his wife uh, in Leicestershire. It's a home uh, worth 1.5 million. It's got sauna, tennis court, that kind of thing. He's been living rent-free in it for years, not even paying electricity and water bills. Uh, and this is all part of a family dispute. Bridget uh, has now lost a court case about it. He's been ordered to pay £800,000. Uh, a judge ruled that he lied under oath, been abusive, arrogant, aggressive uh, during a long legal battle 
against uh, the family firm, uh, which is now run by his estranged younger brother. But Andrew Bridgen isn't in the Hall of Shame for that. Uh, he's in the Hall of Shame because Andrew Bridgen has been a vociferous defender of Alex Belfield. He's the former BBC local radio DJ who was jailed for five and a half years last week uh, for four stalking charges against broadcasters, including Jeremy Vine. Jeremy Vine memorably uh, called Alex Belfield the Jimmy Savile of trolling during his trial. Um, and Andrew Bridgen was standing up for him. In March 2021, Bridgen wrote to Pretty Patel, then the Home Secretary, uh, and said that Belfield had told him he was being victimised by the BBC after launching a YouTube channel uh, which highlighted what Belfield claimed were BBC scandals. Uh, and Bridgen wrote this to Pretty Patel. On the basis of this account, the actions of Nottingham Police in these matters seems to me to be completely disproportionate and would appear to many to have all the hallmarks of a BBC-inspired witch hunt. And two months after that, Andrew Bridgen tweeted, the BBC has huge power and authority without adequate accountability, which led to many scandals, including Jimmy Savile, Martin Bashir, and their ongoing attacks on Alex Belfield. We're all forced under threat of criminal prosecution to pay for this. And that's why Andrew Bridgen is in the Hall of Shame, a man whose pitiful obsession with doing down the BBC has led him to defend the Jimmy Savile of trolling. That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks, as always, to you for listening. Thanks to our producers, Eleanor Longman-Rood, and to John Dakin. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast, you can join us for just £1 a week for digital, £2 a week for print and digital. That is the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast with exciting changes ahead, Please subscribe and give us nice ratings, lovely reviews. Join our Facebook readers group. Follow us on Twitter at The New European. Follow me on Twitter, if you like, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Until the next time we meet, then, with a new New European podcast. So long, snowflakes. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.